This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. My favorite cookie of all time was a brand made by Keebler named Fudgetown. Fudgetown were chocolate sandwich cookies popular when I was a young girl, and I thought they were the most delectable and beautiful cookies ever created. They were delectable because the milk chocolate was soft and fudgy, and the biscuit was crispy and flaky. They were beautiful because they were shaped like flowers with a thick dollop of chocolate deep in the center. I used to savor the experience of these cookies slowly. First, I would stick my tongue into the center and flick out the chocolatey dollop. Then I would pop open the two sandwich pieces and use my teeth to scrape off the side with the chocolate. Then I would keep each cookie on my tongue until the heat of my mouth melted it away. This ritual probably took about 20 minutes, but the memory of this experience has lasted my lifetime. And while I also cherished my moments with wise barbecue potato chips, Drake's yodels and devil dogs, cheese doodles and great knee-high soda, it is the Fudgetown cookies alone that still make my knees weak with love and devotion. In addition to the mystical taste these cookies provided, I also fell under the spell of the package containing these blissful morsels. Of course it featured the Keebler elves, but inasmuch as I found these brand icons amusing and entertaining, it was not the elves that captured my interest. What had me utterly mesmerized was what the elves were doing. What had me positively transfixed was the illustration on the front face panel of the cookie package that featured the Keebler elves holding a package of Fudgetown cookies, which meant that the Keebler elves holding a package of Fudgetown cookies were holding a package featuring the Keebler elves holding a package of Fudgetown cookies, and so on and so on and so on. The Keebler Elves holding this package of Keebler Elves killed me. The infinity of it all. I would stare at the package for hours on end, trying to pinpoint the moment I couldn't see the singularity where the Keebler Elf and the cookie package both originated. It all ended up in a single point that was indiscernible, and I was both entranced and perplexed as to the notion of this infinite package. This became my entree into the concept of infinity, and I found the philosophic conundrum it represented and the unresolved mystery both wondrous and stupefying. According to David Darling, the author of the Encyclopedia of Astrobiology, infinity is a concept that has fascinated philosophers and theologians linked as it is to the notion of unending distance and space and eternity. But it is also met with open hostility throughout most of the history of mathematics. It is only within the past century that mathematicians have dealt with it head-on and have accepted infinity as a number, albeit the strangest one we know. 
Yet according to John Barrow, author of The Infinite Book, infinity remains a fascinating subject. It lies at the heart of all sorts of fundamental human questions. Can you live forever? Will the universe have an end? Did it have a beginning? Does the universe have an edge, or is it simply unbounded in size? Although it is easy to think about lists of numbers or sequences of clock ticks that go on forever, there are other sorts of infinity that seem to be more challenging. What about an infinite temperature or an infinite brightness? Can such physical things actually be infinite? Or is infinity just shorthand for finite but awfully big? My search for the origin point on the Fudgetown cookie box was my first experience with the illusory magic of packaging. This obsession with boldly, boldly grew and came to include goody barrette packaging, golden book covers, all things Barbie, of course, the record covers of Olivia Newton-John, Elton John, and later Roger Dean's covers for the band Yes, Band-Aid tins, the Malton Salt Girl, and McCall Magazine's Betsy McCall also figured prominently in my attraction to consumer icons, what I now romantically and proudly call branding. The upside to all of this brand attachment is just that, feeling connected, part of something larger than oneself, and the participation in a real or imagined community of like-minded spirits. The downside, of course, is multifaceted. First, these communities may very well have a shaky foundation. After all, it is hard to depend on the reliability and support system of transitional objects, which most of these connections usually are. Second, there comes a point when you realize that these things, these brands, aren't enough. Having more or better or best doesn't provide you with a lasting sense of having more or being better or being best. It is rather fleeting an experience, this romantic attachment to and with brands. And I find that if I'm not careful, the search for having more or better or best is a precarious journey into the infinite. When you depend on finite objects or brands to provide you with a long-term sense of self or love or pride or achievement, you set yourself up on a path with no end. No object, no product, no brand can provide you with ultimate, infinite satisfaction. I once had a boyfriend tell me that I was a bottomless pit of need. He wasn't saying this because I thought I needed another pair of shoes or a Prada handbag, which I likely did at the time, but that's another story entirely, but rather because of a fragile emotional state that demanded constant reassurance of my lovability. As you can imagine, this drove him crazy. My infinite need for reassurance required an infinite effort on his part, and you can guess how that relationship ended up. Some infinites are tough. Others, like the idea of infinite space or mathematical subdivisions, are simply inconceivable. But I believe some infinites are worthy challenges. The search for what is truly beautiful, laughing at the same time with someone you love, discovering the perfect piece of poetry, experiencing the deepest feelings of empathy, and if that doesn't work, there are always chocolate cookies. But I do think that T.S. Eliot describes it best in his poem, Preludes. His soul stretched tight across the skies that fade behind a city block or trampled by insistent feet at four and five and six o'clock. 
and short square fingers stuffing pipes and evening newspapers and eyes assured of certain certainties, the conscience of a blackened street impatient to assume the world. I am moved by these fancies that are curled around these images and cling to the notion of some infinitely gentle, infinitely suffering thing. Wipe your hand across your mouth and laugh. The worlds revolve like ancient women gathering fuel in vacant lots. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is brand guru and author, Marty Neumeyer. Before we get started with today's show, please let me tell you a little bit about him. A designer, a writer, and former publisher, Marty Neumeyer has run his own firm since 1973. After attending Art Center College of Design in Los Angeles, he started Neumeyer Design in Santa Barbara, California, and in 1983 opened a second office in Palo Alto to serve clients in the electronics industry. He later combined both offices into a single Silicon Valley operation, which eventually became the leading specialist in retail software packaging. From 1996 to 2001, he published Critique, the magazine of graphic design thinking, while continuing to develop packaging and brand icons for Fortune 1000 clients. 2001, Newmeyer relaunched Newmeyer Design as Neutron LLC, a pioneer in the field of collaborative brand integration. Over the last 30 years, Newmeyer has won hundreds of awards for design and writing and has become a regular speaker and critic on all matters of design. He's the author of three marvelous books. His book, The Brand Gap, is a lively primer on bridging the gulf between strategy and creativity. And his latest book, Zag, published last fall, is the ultimate primer on differentiation. Welcome, Marty. Thank you, Debbie. It's great to be on your show. Thank you. It's great to have you here. So I always like to ask people that work in branding what their definition of brand is. So I'm sorry to be so pedantic, but I'd love to know yours on the air. Sure. Um, I, I hope it's uh, surprising to some some of the audience um, because I do think our understanding of brand has changed over the last ten years. So my definition is a brand is a person's gut feeling about a product, a service, or a company. Okay. Um, a gut feeling. So it's it, a gut feeling because uh, you know, as, as logical as we all try to be, we're really pretty intuitive people. And uh, we make a lot of decisions, uh, like Malcolm Gladwell says, in a blink, mm -hmm. uh, because we don't have time to sort through all our choices of all the stuff in the world to buy. I mean, that's there's so much clutter of products and messages and everything out there that we just have to uh, we sort of go with uh, with the herd on a lot of things. So it's, uh, we use our gut feeling a lot, and it's I say it's uh, a gut feeling of a person because. We, we tended to think about brands as something that companies control, but it's really controlled by individuals. So you have a brand of Fudgetown cookies. Mm -hmm. right? You have your a, a, a very seductive image of Fudgetown cookies, but my image of it might be different. Mm -hmm. So everyone has their own brand of something, of a product, a service, or, or a company. Yeah, so yeah. you can see how that changes uh, your perspective on it. Well, I know that in, in the brand gap, you, you wrote a line that really um, I thought was very compelling. Uh, you wrote, a brand is not what you say it is. It is what they say it is. That's right. So okay. is, that, is that what you mean by, by everybody having yeah, a sort of yeah, different Yeah, it's determined impression? by people, not by companies. Companies provide the raw material for a brand, the product, the messaging, the behaviors, and all that that people make brands out of. 
but uh, you and I have different brands of Nike, for example. Now, overall, we might have a fairly similar idea of what Nike is all about, but but uh, um, it's it's really it can it can vary from um, group to group, country to country, and so forth. So there's in that sense, there's no uh, such thing as a global brand. People use that term, but it's it's really impossible mm-hmm. with, this defin- with this definition. Really interesting. So do you feel that having different perspectives of what the brand is impacts where a brand could potentially go? Impacts it, limits it, um, opens doors, and so forth. So, yeah, I think uh, it's really about the capabilities of a given product your brand and how far you can stretch it. So how do you feel? How do you feel about market research? If everybody has a sort of different sense of what a brand is and what a brand could be, how do you feel about traditional um, focus groups, qualitative focus groups, and, and uh, research of that sort? I love research. I sort of question focus groups um, because I think they're misused quite a bit. They're very mm-hmm. easy to uh, to execute, so people use them a lot. But focus groups were really invented to um, to focus the research that came after that. That's why they call them focus groups. Mm. So, um, you know, you get a group of people together and you raise some questions, then you go out and you research those questions to find the actual answers to those. So if you use a focus group, let's say, to determine the best uh, the best packaging for Fudgetown cookies, for example, mm. or the best tagline for a company or the best trademark, you're not going to get very useful answers from that. So really you have to test in different ways than that. So I would say... Traditional testing, I'm not a big fan of. Yeah, I'd like to, to talk to you a little bit more about that. Um, market research is a topic that I find particularly sexy, which is probably to the dismay of many of my listeners, but nevertheless. <laughs> well, you know, uh, there's, you have 140,000 listeners, and I'm sure some of those are designers. And we designers have always sort of uh, cast a jaundiced eye at, at research because we've seen how it can ruin our work. I know, um, I know. And I think that's because it's badly done research, and I think research can be your friend if it uh, opens the door to do great work. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think it also has a lot to do with um, maybe hearing opinions about your work that you'd rather not hear. But that's, that's, <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> it, yeah, you have, to, uh, you have to be able to accept the pain of being critiqued, you know, especially when it's true. You know, that's when it really hurts. Yeah. Um, well, I'd like to um, let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Melman, and my guest today is brand coach and the president of Neutron, Marty Newmeyer. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Stock, mortgage, retirement, wealth. We cover it all. Voice America Business. Welcome to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe, where creative professionals speak out about their work and what inspires them. Luis Blanco and Michael Uman are the creative directors of Interspectacular, a concept studio known for its wacky print and broadcast work. Luis and Michael, the work you did for Comedy Central has a street art look to it. What inspired you to go in that direction? We wanted to go as far in the other direction from that kind of polished, glossy network look 
And we thought, well, what if it's just like kind of black and white Xerox that's chopped out and kind of stuck on? The thing is, we, it's not so much that we wanted to make Comedy Central a street art network because that's not what it was meant. It was going to those sources and seeing what techniques and methods these artists were using to create imagery and using that as a source of inspiration. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Luis and Michael tell us more about where their inspiration comes from. This is Wynton Marcellus for AIGA New York. Nicholas Troxler has spent a lifetime turning the passion and soul of jazz into some of the most compelling poster design ever. AIGA New York proudly presents Look, Listen, Nicholas Troxler in New York City, a benefit for the city of New Orleans followed by a concert by Cecil Taylor, the new AHA 3, and John Zorn's Acoustic Masada. We know y'all are going to enjoy it. And please go to AIGANewYork.org to register and get all the details. Mom, my tooth fell out. The coach says I can play shortstop. I can be a deciduous tree. You live for the first in your child's life. But how do you cope with the first that come after your child is diagnosed with cancer? PureSearch.org connects you to the doctors and scientists whose collaborative research has turned childhood cancer from a nearly incurable disease to one with an overall cure rate of 78%. PureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by PureSearch and the Ad Council. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.20 Eastern Time, and you're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is author and brand guru, Marty Neumeyer. If you'd like to join our conversation, our phone lines are now open. Please call 1-866-472-5790. And, Marty, we do have a caller on the line, Gregory from New York. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Hello. Marty. Happy Hi, Friday. Oh, happy Friday. Um, I, I'm neither a marketer nor a designer, but I I am not a great fan of focus groups or demographics because I somehow feel they've sabotaged or strangled design. Um, if, if, like, for example, if you look at a cereal box from 1964, if you look at a Fruit Loops box, it's so beautiful and it's so vibrant, and that's very difficult to achieve today because there's so much muck on the box mm-hmm. and not the icon or um, what they're trying to communicate. And I'm wondering if... You don't think that all of these focus groups uh, that are supposed to be the voice of the consumer has, in fact, lost the voice for the consumer? I think they expect focus groups to do too much. So if they're expecting insight on how to design a package from a focus group, I think they're going to be out of luck. Right. Because but don't you think like that marketers so much depend upon that and, and, and thereby they're missing their mark? Yes, I do. Um, of course, they're looking for some sort of assurance that, that they're going to spend their money wisely. They're investing all this money without any sense of whether this is going to work and and uh, bring back a return on their investment, so they want some assurance. And um, designers, unfortunately, are unable to give that to them, and I think that's something we need to correct. But um, they expect that the focus groups are going to come up with cogent uh, solutions to problems like, you know, I think a blue background would be a lot better on this. I'd probably buy it if it were a blue background, you know. 
I, I don't think you're going to get that kind of answer. So the trick is to avoid focus groups and design as you normally would design. You design, uh, you, know, you prototype a lot of solutions, whether it's a package or a trademark or ad campaign, prototype a lot of solutions using your intuition because a, a brand is a, a, a gut feeling, so you need to address gut feeling with gut feeling. And you you expose that range of solutions to a potential audience, your your audience, in the most realistic situation you can. So if it's a package that would be in the store with people who are actually shopping in that category, that is absolutely the best way to do it. And it's really fast and cheap. And you get actually really good uh, uh, answers and feedback when you do that. So that's that's kind of what I like to do. I like to keep it very simple, uh, cheap, quick, and dirty, as we say. Well, it seems that um, it just seems that the consumer has lost their voice, and marketers are just always living in fear and not trusting their their customer. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, so they, I think they can trust the customer to uh, give them a, a, a fair reaction to uh, uh, you know some sort of expression of a brand. Um, but then you have to be able to interpret those uh, those. That response, and so that's where a lot of them fall down. It's like they, they take the, the feedback literally, and I don't think you can do that. I think what you're looking for is some balance of of uh, good and different. Is the way I put it in Zag. And so that's what you're looking for. It's not just good, but different also. And different, uh, it's a very powerful uh, approach to designing a brand is to be different. But it doesn't test well usually. It tests in the sort of odd ways where people yeah. say, you know, I'm, I'm just not comfortable with that. Uh, I don't understand exactly what, what you're doing with that. I don't, I don't really don't like yellow, or all this kind of stuff. So you get you get kind of a, a, an interesting mix of uh, I'm not sure I like it or not, but I do see what you're getting at. I see that you're trying to do something new or different. And that's actually what you're looking for is that sort of thing. So uh, when they tested the Aeron chair, for example, uh, they got some very strange comments from people saying, you know, that doesn't look like a chair. Or, you know, uh, what is now a classic item. Now it's a classic because it was different. So um, they didn't say, I, I, I hate the way this chair feels or I hate the concept behind it. They just said, I just think it's weird. So uh, often that's the kind of feedback you're looking for. You need to be able to interpret that correctly. Um, so that's that's the trick. Really, is, is just not taking that feedback at face value. I love the way you think. Thanks, Marty, very much. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks for calling, Gregory. As always, you know it's interesting. I think that that um, marketers often use market research as a bit of an insurance policy, when in fact, I think at best it can give you directional guidance. If you're asking consumers to art, art direct for you, then you might as well ask them to design for you, and you know what that's going to, what's going to happen when that happens. But I also think when in regards to you know something new or different, my one of my um, dear friends and a colleague at Sterling, Mike Bainbridge, uh, often says when people ask him about differentiation that if you ask consumers at the turn of the century, last century, what they wanted in, in transportation, they would have said a faster horse, and and thus the the dangers of, of asking consumers about their needs. 
Um, I think that's right. That's Henry Ford's uh, quote. And I, I think um, that's kind of what you get, is you ask them what they would, yeah, they well, would buy. Yeah, my quote's Henry. They, they basically fall back on whatever they already know that seems familiar, uh, friendly, uh, successful in the past. And that's not going to get you to a new place where you can you know, find untapped market space. You're just not going to get there. So you really have to be different. And you have to, to, to then decide, is it a good different or a bad different? Mm-hmm. And so that's what my little chart uh, that I deal with in Zag tries to, to explain. And it's still a matter of judgment. And, and uh, luckily, we designers, people who think a little more uh, holistically, are pretty able to, um, to interpret that kind of feedback. Um, we just need to, to explain that in left-brain terms to our clients. Well, uh, speaking of, of left brain versus right brain, and I, I do want to get back to Zag, but I, there's a quote that I have been um, using of yours for years, one of my favorite things that you've said, and um, you start you talk about brand tribes and you talk about um, we can belong to the Callaway tribe when we play golf, the VW tribe when we drive to work, the Williams-Sonoma tribe when we cook a meal, the Nike tribe when we work out, um, but... Then you write, but as a weekend athlete, my two nagging doubts are that I might be congenitally lazy and that I might have actual little ability. I'm not really worried about my shoes. When the Nike folks say, just do it, they're peering into my soul. I begin to feel that if they understand me that well, their shoes are probably pretty good. I am then willing to join the tribe of Nike. And, and I want to ask you what what that means in terms of human behavior. What is it about brands that provoke such an internal response that promote such a visceral reaction and, and, and create this connectivity with people and behavior? Well, I think the... the uh the need to do that has probably always been there, but the opportunity hasn't been because in, you say, 100 years ago, you didn't have that many choices in brands and products to choose from. But now you've got more choices than you can deal with. So um, we've reached this level where, gee, we can use whatever we purchase to say something about ourselves or to feel like we're part of something bigger than ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, that's to me what's uh, one of the biggest changes in marketing. If you look at the marketing over the last, say, 100 years, you'll see that uh, the way differentiation worked, let's say, uh, in the 1800s, early 1900s, was you had uh, you found a feature that your competitors didn't have. So let's let's go with one of your your favorites, Morton Salt. Right. All right. So Morton Salt says uh, we've got uh, magnesium sulfide or whatever the chemical is they put in the salt so it doesn't stick together, uh, because all salt at that time was. Probably you scooped it out of a barrel and put it into a bag, and if it was humid outside, uh, it would it would clot together, and you had to take an ice pick and you know crack it mm-hmm. and get it to pour. So they had this chemical which allowed the salt to just pour out of this beautiful cylinder that they made to package it in. Okay, so um, everybody flocked to Morton because they had uh, you know magnesium sulfide. Um, of course, it wasn't long before. Other competitors put that in their salt too, and so that that became you know, not an advantage anymore. So what did they do? They said, well, you know, when it rains, it pours. So what they're talking about there is uh, the benefit from the chemical. So uh, no one else was talking about benefits, and they won by talking about benefits. So by about 1950, though, the the, the, the spotlight shifted from from uh, benefits to to uh, experiences. 
so the experience of using Morton salt is is really great, you know. Um, and so that's what they would sell. But when everyone talked about that, then they had to move to the next thing. And the next thing uh, is kind of where we're headed right now, which is uh, if, if I buy that salt, what will that make me? Mm-hmm. That's what they want to know. If I buy that shoe, if I buy that car, what does that make me? Um, and, and so, and that's also a way to, to make your decision rather quickly, isn't it? You just sort of say, well, I'm, my friends, the people I admire are buying that. I'll just buy that and I'll trust that they've done their homework and that uh, their experience is transferable to me. But well, that's, that's yeah. what's happening now. It's interesting because, you know, salt is one of those commodity products now that somehow have managed to by certain marketers be pushed into the super premium. If you buy this salt, it's better than everything else. I guess sort of what Morton was doing a hundred years ago. Um, I was recently in Tokyo and saw uh, Japanese salt being sold for like twenty dollars a pound. And <laughs> 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 I, I was funny. just that's because there's a whole tribe that wasn't there before, which is the gourmet cooking tribe. Right. Have to the buy foodies. these super and I think that's all you're talking about has a certain crunch to it or something. I mean, there's a sort of textural uh, difference about it. And I think a lot of these salts actually are also owned by Morton. So oh, really? behind your back, they're buying up all these companies and presenting them in different with different brands, basically. And we have, we have to go to break in a moment, but I just wanted to ask you one more question about Morton Salt. What is it about our fascination with the Morton Salt Girl? I mean, why is why is that something that you know you one could arguably say there is no fascination, Debbie, you're just nuts. But I do know that there are a number of people besides me that have a fascination with her that have collected the four Morton Salt packages that have been recently on the market, showing a history of her evolution. Um, and you can also see something you can see that the sort of collector frenzy on eBay. So, so what is it in your opinion that is so compelling about her and other iconic? Marks that that brands. Well, you, you said and, it's, and it's iconic, and what makes it iconic is uh, that it's different, that it's telling a story, um, that it's characterized, it's personified by this little girl who's actually very well drawn in all of those. Even if it's kind of, you know, uh, it looks amateurish in a way, but but it's very smart. That shape of the umbrella and the girl walking and all that's very understandable from a distance. And the story of the salt pouring out the back. She just seems so. Innocent, and you know, when she gets home, she's going to catch hell from her mother for you know losing all the salt. (laughs) You're you're already involved, you know. uh, Brand story, one of the classics. Uh, Yeah. All right. Well, we have to go to break. Unfortunately, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is author and brand guru Marty Newmeyer. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages. So please don't go away. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Luis Blanco and Michael Uman of Interspectacular, the concept studio that designed the look for Comedy Central. Where do you guys get all your ideas? Uh, you know, I don't. I just. I think a lot of it is just I'm informed by pop culture. I've been a mass consumer of pop culture from watching schlocky horror films. I love subculture, comic books. I look at bad science fiction movies. You know, cartoons. You know, you catch me most Saturday mornings. No kids, just me watching Saturday morning cartoons. 
We spend, like I'd say, a good part of the day just cracking jokes and entertaining ourselves. And we know that if we, you know, do us tell a story that makes us crack up, we're sure that there's somebody else out there who's going to see some of the humor that, you know, we're trying to present. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Luis and Michael talk to us about working in a creative team. This is Wynton Marcellus for AIGA New York. You know, when you talk about jazz, most people think of the blues. But Matisse, Bearden, Lawrence, Stuart Davis, and other 20th century masters inspired by this music saw a whole range of colors. For me, jazz is a visual medium. And maybe nobody proves that better than Nicholas Troxler, who spent a lifetime turning the passion and soul of jazz into some of the most compelling poster design ever. Now you can hear it from the man himself, followed by a concert by Cecil Taylor, the new AHA 3, and John Zorn's acoustic Masala. AIGA New York proudly presents Look, Listen, Nicholas Troxler in New York City, a benefit for the most noble city of New Orleans, Saturday, March 10th at Jazz at Lincoln Center in the House of Swing. Go to AIGANewYork.org to register and get all the details. Don't miss this once-in-a-lifetime event and see how Troxler saturates his work with the rhythmic energy of pulsating swinging jazz music. Yes, indeed. 200 years ago, Lewis and Clark discovered the West. That is, if you don't count the millions of American Indians who discovered it first. Because Lewis and Clark left one civilization only to find dozens of others that, despite everything, are still here today. Walk with Lewis and Clark at lewisandclark200.org and see what you discover, because their trail winds through us all. This is a public service message of the National Council of the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial, the Missouri Historical Society, and the Ad Council. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Hi from the Empire State Building. You are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is author and brand coach, Marty Newmeyer. Our phone lines are open, so if you have a question for Marty, please call 1-866-472-5790. Marty, I wanted to talk a little bit more about design and business. And in in doing our research uh, on you before the show, uh, Jen, my chief researcher, found this really compelling quote, um, and I'd like to read it to you and, and get, your, get you to elaborate on it, if you would. Uh, we're at a stage where designers need to learn a lot more about business. It's not enough to say we educate our clients about design. They don't want to be educated about design, not very much. They want you to understand what they're doing so that you can help them do it. When you do that, the value of design increases dramatically. The scope for the increase of the value of design is an exciting part, I think. We've gone through a 100 years wherein design was relegated to a fringe activity, and now it's becoming central to the success of a company because of the need to brand things. I think that's huge. So I think that's huge as well, and I just wanted to know if you could talk a little bit more about that. When do you think that tipping point occurred? How do you think that design is best being utilized by business? I think the tipping point um, is occurring right now. It's, I would say it started probably at the turn of the century, and it's it's tipping for let's say this decade. I would say uh, it's a very exciting time to be a designer, and also a very 
good time to be a business person who um, is is embracing design because um, you know what, what business needs right now is a new uh, sort of a management innovation to to uh, uh, take it to the next level. And so we've had all these innovations before, like uh, you know, um, quality was one and. Uh, Finance before that was a huge thing. So business goes through these cycles where they they discover uh, a new area to to be competitive in. Design is it coming up right now? So, yeah, so uh, I think the, inno- the the innovation buzzword has been getting a lot of airplay. But I'm sorry to interrupt you. Well, no, innovation is is sort of the beginning of that understanding, right? Because they can, you know if you're a business person, you understand that well. You have to innovate to stay ahead of. The clutter of the marketplace, right? Um, and then you, so you think about, well, who can help us innovate? You know, so maybe you go to IDEO and you have them do some product designs because that's pretty easy to understand. We need new innovative products. But, um, of course it can be, uh, design can be used for, for, for communications, for, uh, a lot of things. And, um, I think we're discovering that companies can be designed too. Uh, processes can be designed. Uh, futures can be designed. And what better, uh, group to, to deal with those problems but designers? Because we think in, in ways that uh, allow us to say, what if? Um, what doesn't exist that could exist? Uh, so, so suddenly we're the flavor of the month, but, but we need to understand what businesses are trying to do so we can help instead of just saying, well, you guys, you need to know about design. You need aesthetics or whatever we, we tell them, which is what we used to do for the last 100 years of saying, you know, either hire me or find out more about design. Uh, but, of course, I don't need to know anything about what you're doing because, you know, I'm Paul Rand. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if, if anything could be devo- designed, if, if um, futures can be designed and so forth, is there anything inherently deceptive or wrong about that? I mean, is there a, a, a line that, could ever be crossed where being yeah, yeah. designed would be considered something that was phony or negative? There's sneaky design, <laughs> designed to, uh, mm-hmm. to harm people or harm society. Um, of course, you could use design to do that, and I think uh, we've seen that a lot in the last century, which is why we're suspicious of it. But that's why I love the uh, concept of brand as something that is owned by, by uh, the audience or the people outside the company, uh, it's basically your reputation, company's reputation. So if you if you value that reputation, and believe me, there they can put numbers to the value of your brand, uh, which can be in the billions for a large company. If you value that, you have to think about brand as a long term a long term uh, capability. You don't think of it as you know how can we brand ourselves to sell something today? You know, mm-hmm. at the expense of success tomorrow. No, you have to think about it as a reputation. Why do you think that so many designers have issues with brand consultants? There seems to be some tension still uh, between what I would call sort of purist designers and and business designers. Uh, You know, I I think about that a lot, and I'm not sure there's a simple answer, but I think it is misplaced. I think uh, think probably what it is is um, brand gets confused with advertising. Um, Or money. Or money, yes, it does. And, um, and, and of, of course, that's an old uh, conception of brand, which I don't subscribe to. I think a brand is something uh, that's uh, almost sacred, you know, and, and, if you, and if you destroy it by um, undermining it or, or 
selling yourself out. I mean, that's not that's going to ruin your brand. So that's not smart. Mm-hmm. I think companies are starting to realize uh, that it is a long-term proposition. So uh, if we think about branding as advertising, well, then we sort of get all the baggage of advertising, which is how do we sell something this quarter, you know? Or persuade uh, people to see something in a certain way. To buy something way. they don't want or, yeah, to do something they don't want to do. But brand doesn't happen that way. It's really all about customers and what, how they perceive their experience with the company. Do you think there's a difference between design and persuasion? Oh, sure. Yeah, well, design is... Uh, you know, I like a definition of something like it's it's a way to, um, to to move from one situation to an improved situation. Mm-hmm. That is, so mm-hmm. um, it's 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 a planning activity, and I like to think of it as bigger than just graphic design or communication or advertising or product design. I think it's uh, all about creating a better something, um, and to do that, you need to be strategic and thoughtful and you need to express that change in some way, which designers are very good at doing. Um, tell me a little bit about Critique. You were the publisher of this wonderful magazine for several years. What made you decide to go into magazine publishing, and what made you decide to go out of it? Oh, well. Um, I know. In three minutes or less. No, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry, Marty. <laughs> okay. I went into it because I felt that um, the, uh, the industry needed uh, some thoughtfulness. It needed to think about what design was was doing, what what the needs, what what business and society was asking of design. Instead of just thinking about it as as uh, well, Milton Glaser did it, so I'm going to do it, uh, which is how I used to think about it. Is that so, what made you decide to go into it initially? I thought yeah, we needed to talk about this because so many things were happening uh, that were changing, including the introduction of the computer into our industry. So that's why I did it, and I was hoping that I could bring designers to to business and to organizations, get them closer, bridge the gap between uh, business and creativity. Um, and uh, it, it was difficult going. It was hard going because there's just so much tradition in our in our field. Uh, there were a few uh, 4,000 loyal subscribers that, that thought the way I did, but, but that wasn't enough to sustain the magazine. So now what I've done is take that same sort of thinking, and I'm, now I'm going to businesses and saying, you've got to come over here to design. Design can really help you. Design is amazing, and here's how you can use it. That's, that's my goal, and that seems to be working a lot better. So that's what happened to Critique. After five years of losing money every year, I could no longer support it. So um, you've just written a new book called Zag which I want to talk a little bit about uh, before our break and then continue afterward. Um, why Zag? Why the title Zag? Well, in, in my book, Brand Gap, I, I, I kind of break down the whole brand building process into five areas, uh, differentiation, collaboration, innovation, validation, and um, cultivation. And the questions that I got when I did my workshops and uh, go out and go, went out on speaking tours uh, was, Differentiation. Can you tell me more about that? That seems a little counterintuitive, and it is counterintuitive. So Zag addresses differentiation, and it says basically in a, in a cluttered marketplace, differentiation is no longer enough. It has to be radical differentiation. So when everybody zigs, Zag. Okay, so my next question was going to be why another book on differentiation. Yeah. Um, now, when you say radical differentiation, is there an example you can give us? Oh, yeah. I think a good example that we all are familiar with is uh, the mini car is a good example of radical differentiation. It's not just a little different, you know, with a little different body shape or something. It's the opposite uh, 
of uh, what everybody thought a car should be. Everyone thought a car is an SUV, and I'm not interested in anything else. So they said, no, we're the anti-SUV, and then everything they did supported that idea all the way down the line. It was just a beautiful execution of a Zag. Uh, I love that one. So there are many more like that. Uh, okay, good. Well, let's, we'll talk a little bit more about your book when we get back from the break. Um, thank you, Marty. Uh, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is brand guru and brand coach, Marty Newmeyer. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Strengthening your financial goals. The leader in business talk radio, Voice America Business. Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Luis Blanco and Michael Uman of Interspectacular. So tell us what it was like to work with a creative team to design Comedy Central's identity. It was very collaborative. I mean, essentially, we pooled together a design team, and we made sure that the designers understood that it wasn't about your work. It was about the group's work. People would scan that stuff in, and we'd kind of put it in a shared drive, and it became the group's assets. I think the big challenge was to make each other laugh, because somebody would do something, take a logo and tweak it just a certain way, being subversive and being funny with it, and the group would kind of like, oh, that's a cool little thing that's funny. So then you would start to see it virally through the work, and then it would kind of evolve and, and morph. And then, you know, we would kind of sit and direct it, and we would kind of add marks to it, too. You know what? It's really all about entertaining ourselves in the end. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. For more information, visit adobe.com. This is Wynton Marcellus for AIGA New York. Nicholas Troxler has spent a lifetime turning the passion and soul of jazz into some of the most compelling poster design ever. AIGA New York proudly presents Look, Listen, Nicholas Troxler in New York City, a benefit for the city of New Orleans, followed by a concert by Cecil Taylor, the new AHA 3, and John Zorn's Acoustic Masada. We know y'all are going to enjoy it. And please go to AIGANewYork.org to register and get all the details. Mom? Dad? How long should I wait for you? Mom? If I'm at soccer practice, what if something happens? Will you come get me? There's no reason not to have a plan in case of a terrorist attack. Mom, if you're not home, should we go to the neighbor's house? And some extremely good reasons why you should. Can you tell me? Everybody should have a plan. Take five minutes to talk about where you'll meet and how you'll get in touch with each other in an emergency. For other things you can do to be prepared, visit www.ready.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.50 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Melman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Melman, and my guest today is lovely Marty Neumeyer. Uh, Marty, we have a caller on the line, Isabel from New York. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Marty. Hi, I actually have a double question. Uh, first, I'd like to know, what do you think the true purpose of design is today? And who do you think is doing a really good job branding, aside from the usual Starbucks 
FedEx and so on. Who else out there is doing a really great job? Boy, you ask really <laughs> questions. <laughs> the real um, purpose of design, Marty. I can't ask you to save that for another. Um, <laughs> well, you can't well ask um, me to next week. <laughs> yeah, true purpose of design, a true purpose. Well, design can do so much. Um, again, my definition of, of uh, moving something from an existing state to an improved state is kind of how I think of design in a general way. Um, and in that sense, I... I love to think about people and companies as designers who normally wouldn't be. I think of CEOs as designers, for example, mm. because they're trying to do that same thing, is take their company from one state to another state, usually, if they're good. So um, once you start um, thinking about these other people as designers, the ones who are um, trying to create change, make change, then you start thinking about, well, how can I collaborate with those people so that together we can do something we couldn't do separately? And that's where it starts to get interesting. And that's what we didn't have 50 years ago with Paul Rand, he would just say, just give me that job, I'll do it and bring you back the answer. So no collaboration there. It was me uh, as the genius bringing you back the, you know, the Ten Commandments, here you go. Um, so I think design can be very collaborative today. Now, people who do really good branding are actually, I think, far and few between right now because of things have changed so much that we, we're not sure about how to, how to work together to make this happen. Um, so I think it happens in pockets. I don't think there's anybody who's like, you know, every time out they do the great job. I think it just happens when the planets align. Mm-hmm. But I think we need to change that so it becomes much more intentional, And uh, which is why I write these books. I'm trying to get everybody on the same page. By, by absorbing all the, the, the best practices out there and then adding some new practices to those and then simplifying it so we can all understand it and respond to it and, and, and I hope work together to make... Uh, to do design in a new way. Isabel, are you satisfied with that answer? I am. Thank you very much. Thank you, Isabel, for calling. Um, Marty, while we're talking about design and business, what advice would you give designers today in working with CEOs or senior brand people? Um, Well, I think you really need to think about where they're coming from. So if, if they're very creative, you don't have to do things much differently. Just make sure that you're having a, an honest conversation and, and offering a lot of choices. But usually that's not the case. Usually it's um, you're, you're the right brain person, the creative person, and you have to work with someone who's more strategic, more left brain. And so you're actually coming from two different worlds. Mm-hmm. And so you need to understand uh, you can't bring them over to your world. I don't think you can expect that. They're just not going to come over. You have to, to, to go over to their side and explain why uh, this creative solution is a solution and in terms that they can appreciate. So it's often quantifying it or or uh, adding rigor to the conversation or some sort of logic uh, so they can say, yeah, I can see what you're getting at. Yes, we want that. Um, so it's a lot about how you explain things. Um, so if you're a, very, a creative person who's just very intuitive and, and maybe does a fabulous job getting the solutions, getting the right answers, but can't explain that, that's going to be a problem. You really mm-hmm. need to understand that. Your way of thinking is not everybody else's way of thinking, as valuable as it is. And if I turn the question around, what what advice would you give CEOs or senior brand managers that might be listening um, in working with designers? (laughs) Again, it depends on how um, 
how intuitive they are. CEOs can be very intuitive. So if you get to work with a CEO, you're you're probably in great shape. But usually CEOs have lots of things to do, and, and uh, design isn't on the top of their list. But um, why why isn't it on the top of their list? Just from your well, perspective, they do a lot of times dealing with uh, stockholder issues and finance and um, operational issues that, that that go across all kinds of categories. And as much as they won't, you know. Not all CEOs can be Steve Jobs, let's put it that way. And it's probably not a good idea to try to be Steve Jobs. Um, and I think design has to be, has, has to happen throughout the company. It has to be embedded in the culture of the company. And not, you can't expect it to come from the top person. I just think there are other things to deal, deal with from that position. You have an illustration in, in your book, in Zag, which reads, World Mourns Loss of Taste. <laughs> 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 tell me, tell me about the inspiration of that. Well, that's actually a, uh, an example of an exercise that we do in our workshops, um, where we get companies to write an obituary uh, about their company. So this one happens to be about a fictitious uh, uh, brand of wine bars called Taste. So that's uh-huh. where it came from. <laughs> but um, but it's a, it's a good exercise to go through. You can do it in your own career too. You write. You know, you you write an obituary. Uh, let's say your company uh, in 25 years dies finally. Um, how would you like that obituary to read? In your wildest dreams, what would it say about your company? Mm-hmm. And um, when executives start to do that, all the passion starts coming out, and you realize that that's really what they're trying to do. And as a designer, you can start to make that happen. But you first need to know how they envision their future. And sometimes they haven't even thought about it, but uh, we get groups of executives together to to write those those obituaries and they're just amazing sometimes. And what are some of you don't have to tell us for whom, but what are some of the interesting things that you've heard? One example was um, what what seemed to be a boring um, uh, security software company, you know, just keeping you safe from spam and things like that. Um, and we thought, well, this is going to be hard to get them to think about anything else but just making money and pleasing their shareholders. No, no, we gave them this exercise, and they characterized themselves as uh, firemen who were running into a burning building. <laughs> That's really how they saw themselves, or as cops, you know, saving humanity from, from the hackers. The hackers were the enemy. Right. And uh, every day they got up to go to work, they thought about how to stay a step ahead of the hackers. Wow, that's wonderful. And how would you write yours, Marty? <laughs> oh, you would ask that. You know, I'll have to do that someday. <laughs> um, I'm lucky in that I'm doing exactly what I like every day. I'm just so happy to, to have that privilege. And, um, and it's not easy to get in that position. So I encourage everyone out there to try to do that because it makes a huge difference in your the passion you bring to your work. Well, thank you, Marty. Um, we've come to the end of our broadcast, and I'd like to thank you very much for being on the show today. I'd also like to give a very special thanks to our sponsor, Adobe. Big thanks as well to Brian Travis and Ruben and Ryan at Voice America and Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling. Joining me next week live from San Francisco is the Vice President and Creative Director of Target, Linda Gralnick. Thank you for listening, and please remember... We can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. 
right here on the bottom line in business talk voice america business 